You know, people often ask me, what makes Joe's Shrimp Shack so special? Normally, I just flag those emails for deletion, pretend I didn't see them, but here is the answer. At Joe's Shrimp Shack, we're a different breed. Our day starts at 11 a.m. on the interstate with a guided yoga session offered by the Highway Patrol. And after the hangover fades, just a short Uber trip to the shop. We raise our non-GMO small batch cholo wood right here in America, which is then painstakingly measured to accurately match Joe's rock-hard physique. Our livestock is hair grass-fed from the finest selection of tissue cultures and supplemented with a proprietary blend of liquid minerals sourced directly from our own body sweat. Most of our competitors quickly end the relationship with their shrimp when they ship them out feeling confused and unwanted. We safeguard against this by playing 80s power ballads, securing them against future heartbreak. You may think this all sounds unnecessary, but once we've ensured the highest quality shrimp and dry goods from our pastures to your personal aquarium, we'll tell you what's necessary. So fuck you. JoeShrimpShack.com. It's not a restaurant. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Mean people to libraries smell like burnt hair, Jimmy. Oh, the podcast. Guys, welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast. I am your host, Rob Zolson. I'm Jim Colby, the one who's not tarted. <laughs> and I'm Adam Alvar, and I'm pretty sure I'm sober than both more sober than both of them. So for those that don't know, uh Jim just got back, literally just got back from his uh long vacation in an dis- indisclosed location in a campground by himself quarantining. And uh, I had clearly he filled his van with tequila. Tequila. I don't know. What was it? Rum was a problem. Tequila, also a problem. Um, Beer was a problem. I mean, this isn't normal. You're smiling and your eyes are glossy. Normally it's one of the two. (laughs) Oh, no, we had a good time. We uh, we went on vacation and uh, spent a lot of money that we didn't have. And now I'm going to do this podcast so I can be rolling in the money. Just rolling. Just rolling in the money. Well, I don't know. I'm a financial advisor, but you need to find something better. I know. I just, I just want to point that out. Well, guys, this week we are happy to have Alex from the Secret History of Living in Your Aquarium YouTube channel. Certainly, uh, check it out. Fantastic YouTube channel. It's been going a while. It's a library of information. Alex, how are you tonight, buddy? I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks again, especially uh, short notice. It's really difficult. For us as a podcast, trying to uh, pre-curate content and doing scheduling, we do a podcast every week and trying to schedule podcasts with people that uh, are very uh, tight schedules, content creators, uh, doctors, or people that have doctorates, very difficult and cancellations are inevitable. So we appreciate you bumping up your time, sir. It's probably better that you, you know, asked me the day of because, you know, I was like, oh, I, I can't come up with an excuse that quick. I better, I better go on. So wonderful. Yeah, I'll use that tactic. That's how I found my wife. <laughs> <laughs> can't find an excuse to say no. No. Oh, I didn't know you got proposed to. I did. I did. My, my wife says to me, we should move up to wedding. I go, why? She goes, I really want your health insurance. <laughs> that is a true story. So if you ever get to meet her, ask her how her health insurance is. Yeah, the United States has a uh, overwhelming divorce rate because of our health insurance. Yeah, my, wife, my wife's in the healthcare profession. My ex-wife was in the healthcare profession, and they've got the crappiest 
health insurance. Uh, just recently, Jen had some surgery. I know we've talked about this before. Our bill came to $38,000, and I paid $1,100 out of pocket. So I was pretty happy with that. No wonder you're almost That's pretty good. Old. It's not even the booze. No, I was just happy about that. And so uh, uh, about 1,094 more payments, and I'll, it'll all be mine. I'm sending them a dollar a day. Dollar a day. <laughs> just like the pygmies in Africa. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, why, why should I pay it off right away? I mean, I, I could, but... If I don't pay it off right away, maybe they'll, you know, repossess her, you know. So if I'm, if she, if I'm having a bad day, they can just take her. That'd be fun for me anyway. No, Fingers crossed. Yeah. Exactly. Fingers crossed. You'd have to miss 90 days. Yeah. 90 days. 90 days until the sheriff kicks in the door. Well, this week, again, we have a lot more uh, questions that were sent in, and we even have a voicemail. Um, those are getting more common now. But uh, before we do, we have a, a question in Discord. We are... Again, doing this live for the community. So if you want to listen in live, the only way to get it live is going to uh, AquariumGuysPodcast.com. On the bottom of the website, we have the link for Discord. Come join the debauchery and fun. Um, Barf wants to know, how are those scrotum frogs doing? I worry they'd be getting chafed with all this heat wave coming through. <laughs> Adam? Adam? That's They're for you, fine. buddy. Fine. Your scrotum frogs are fine? Wonderful. Yep. We, we need yep. a status update on those. Stat. Yeah. Stat. Yep. They're they're growing and reproducing very well. Well, <laughs> I thought you had a vasectomy. What happened? <laughs> not a frog. Well, not a frog. You had a vasectomy. Right, right. that's different. Father of We're four definitely children. not talking about him. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that, everybody. <laughs> All right, so here is a voicemail from one of our dedicated uh, listeners. Here we go. Hey, everyone, um, especially uh, Bob, Adam, uh, Jim, this is uh, gotta remember Jim. Adam, yeah. uh, we got the best name. Um, just wanted to, you know, give you guys uh, absolutely love the podcast. And uh, I'm an exterminator. Um, and actually, the granules that I use for the yard kills uh, Malaysian trumpet snails. Um, just you know, thought I'd let you guys know. Also, could you guys do a podcast on uh? Black Ghost Knife Fish, I have one in a 150-gallon aquarium. Um, you know, just I'd like to know more about them and if you can breed them. Thank you guys so much. Love you guys so much. I feel like I'm, you know, right there with you. Well, that's because you are. You are. Miracle here. of voicemail. That is correct. Man, that was nice. Also, I've never been called Bob before. It feels weird. <laughs> Bob. I'm officially old. I know, but at least he remembered me at the very end after he went through 14 names, you know. And Jim. And Jim. But Adam came up several times. Right, Adam. Yeah. That, no one can forget Adam. No. Yeah. How did yeah. The, uh, how does that water... I wonder if that poison is water-soluble. It's poison, so I'm not going to use it. But I know that at least now we know that there is something on this planet that can kill a trumpet snail all the way. Here, Here's here's what... I, I read in between the lines. I know you guys didn't catch it. I read in between the lines. Did you? Freaking trumpet snails are now out in people's lawns. Crawling around. That, there you go. That's what that is. Y'all killing them, and nobody understands that freaking trumpet snails. Fuck you, people. I'm sorry. I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail now because some people love trumpet snails. If the uh, love their snail. If the film company that had Harvey Weinstein's assets uh, wants something to do now, they can make a horror film on snails. Trumpet, trumpet snails. snails killing people now. That's right. You can take that one for free. But as far as uh, knife fish breeding. I can't say that I know people that breed them. Um, I know that they are breeding in certain areas where they've been invasive, such as Florida. Knife fish are now becoming a, a more of an invasive issue, and people are intentionally game fishing them because they're uh, becoming Sweet. more and more popular. 
But uh, how about you, Alex? Do you know uh, much about the breeding details of ghost knives? As far as I know, they most people need uh, to use hormones currently to to successfully get them to do it. I think I think they need a, a pretty hearty temperature change compared to most fish. So it's like a seasonal thing. So you have to either be patient and wait that cycle, or you're going to be uh, employing some uh, human growth hormone. I know that that sounds weird because they're fish, but apparently human growth hormone also works on fish. So it sounds like a lot like my first marriage, just seasonal, and you have to just kind of wait for the right time. Seasonal, wait for it, if not. Yeah, yeah, next year. Wait for that blue pill. That's great. No, that's not the problem. That's a growth (laughs) hormone, right? Yeah, exactly. I thought I've heard that they've been breeding them. They've bred them in Florida. I did hear with hormones, but I thought Germany had some people breeding them. Oh, probably those Germans. <laughs> Germans, <laughs> Germans do everything. In they the can hobby. make good beer, and they can breed. Germans do everything in the hobby. Before we go too much yeah. further, because we have Alex on, of course, this uh, podcast is going to be about modern history of the aqu- aquarium. So uh, we'll talk about Germans here in a bit because there's a uh, a lot of details. I'm assuming Alex is just uh, soaked up for us. But the next one is a uh, text message that we have. Nope, it's an email. I lied. Uh, hello, it's probably been answered been, uh, been answered before, but I have a 10-gallon tank and a 20-gallon tank. My wife wants a guppy tank and wants to breed them all. Which tank should I use? Thanks for the help. So I already took the opportune moment to email this one back. And I said, guppies will breed in a cup. So if you're looking for the appropriate uh, spot, uh, as long as they, they're, they're breathing in water. <laughs> Touching each other. They're wiggling. They're, there's going to be that happening. There's nothing you can do about it. So I think the better question is, what's the right tanks for multiplying guppies? Well, I think having a separate grow-out tank, number one, is the best. Having just something aside, four babies that you can feed multiple times a day to get them to grow out. And then having the rest, the adults, in a bigger tank, say like a 40-gallon is a nice, nice size to keep a bunch. What I'd like to do is... I'd like to take and put the females when they're real close to giving birth in a empty tank. And I, I like to put them in a, a net of some sort. Um, what yep. people give me crap, but I, I use those pop-up hampers and you can get different sizes of those little pop-up hampers, but uh, you put the female in there. And when the, when the babies are born, they'll swim out away from the, from the female. And if you do take a small light and put away from the female, for some reason, Baby guppies are attracted to the light, kind of like mosquitoes are to the yard light outside. And um, that way, when she's done giving birth, you can just take her and pop her out uh, into the regular tank, give her a little time to recover. But then you've already got your 30 or 60 little guppies in that tank, and you're not chasing all these babies around with a net trying, trying to pick them up. Meanwhile, as you're, as you're trying to catch them, then the goddamn uh, males and females will see them darting and will go after them and eat them also. So... I like putting the females just before they give birth. And if you've just got a few females, you can keep track. I mean, it's normally between 30 to 40 days, depending on the temperature, how long it takes for them to give birth. So Now, I take those because uh, they have those mesh, uh, was it baby baskets that you put in a tank? Yep. I take the material off of it and then just put that cut pop-up hamper material over it. And that, that works as well for smaller tanks because you don't want to put a whole pop-up hamper in a small tank. That's not going to work for you. Well, he's... I didn't get my last point. He went get a 300 gallon tank. Oh, well, there's your last point. <laughs> there's my last point. Get yourself a Rubbermaid tote. All right. And uh, make sure it's a cattle trough for a size. Exactly. And you're set. And then that was what we call a good start. <laughs> I had seven 300 gallon 
tubs downstairs in my warehouse, and we used to have lots of babies. I thought that was for uh, your legal. One was a hot tub. I, oh, will, okay. I will say that one was a hot tub, and one we kept beer in. So, what's the thing they do in Minnesota? They, it's not uh, brewing. It's uh, makes mead. What fermenting? Oh, moonshine. Basically, but for Minnesota, they use they, it's mead. It's all wheat based and shit. Oh, and then they ferment. Mead is honey based. It's, it's like wheat honey. It's like a whole thing. Yeah, it's mainly for us the Scandinavians up here, but that's that's pretty popular to do in those things. So again, one tub for guppies, one tub for jacuzzi, and the last tub for your mead. There that's you right. Go. There, there's there's your beginner's basement. Beginner, the starter, starter, starter basement, starter kit. So Alex, what's your secrets? We know that you have a bunch of guppies. Oh yeah. Uh, um, my secret is I don't tell anyone when like an endler gets into the wrong tank because. People get really mad about that. Um, but no, I, I, you know, I've got. How dare you mix the feeder guppies? Yeah, yeah. I know it's like, you know, they're so pure and virginal, their, their lines are. So, um, no, I, my, my trick is to, I plant the heck out of my tanks. And uh, I'll usually, uh, if they're a, a guppy with large fins, I won't worry about doing anything different because they're slow. Uh, but but if they are a wild type or something that's pretty sleek, then I will end up uh, usually separating the with the females when they're when they're real swollen, and I'll uh, put them into like a five gallon, let them have their babies. They might eat a few that night. It's kind of a reward, and then I'll just toss them, you know, back into the home tank, and then you got the baby guppies that you can feed and clean out all the extra urea and whatever else is going to be in there from feeding them three or four times a day. I, I got to say, um, Adam and, and I and Jim have this uh, long-term joke going back to the original uh, episodes of the podcast where we make fun of guppies, calling them feeder guppies. And no, we, antlers. We make fun of antlers. Oh, excuse me. We don't make fun of guppies because guppies me. are cool. So the moment you said that you mix an endler with something else by accident, I was just sitting here giggling because I'm watching Adam's asshole pucker. Oh, he, he he lighted up like it was Christmas. Endlers. It was pretty great. Don't worry. I already softened him up with the previous question before everyone came in. I asked him, what are your, what's your opinion on uh, hybrids? <laughs> <laughs> Do they have hybrids? <laughs> you know what's, what, what's sickening? The other day I was looking at one of my, one of my lists, and they, they sell all these different kinds of endler guppies they're not cheap and no. and here's the thing they're packed 500 but they want a buck 75 a piece so 500 times a dollar 75 for one bag of antler guppies i'm thinking why don't you just go to the casino and just put a thousand dollars down on black and be done a lot faster so i'm just checking here we've had a handful of text messages sent to our number and if you want to message us for questions leave a voicemail or send an email our contact info is on our uh, website aquariumguyspodcast.com on the bottom Again, just more people demanding more pictures of Jim's fish room that we have to ignore because Jimmy's not nice to his fans. What? Just saying. You know what? If I get thrown in jail, I'll take selfies. That'd be kind of fun for everybody. <laughs> for some reason, one of my text messages won't load here. That is rather unfortunate. Yeah. I wish we had an IT guy that worked here. Right. It's almost like... Uh, you suck. Got deleted. I Literally, we had such a nice review from someone. It's, I even put, thank you so much for the kind words. It means a lot to us. And the... Former text message literally got deleted. I don't know how I got yeeted. Your mom, your mom deleted it again. It hates me clearly. All right, all right. Last, uh, last check here. Give me one moment. This is the miracle of uh, 
cut this. I think we're good to go. Other than we have one old voicemail that I uh, we forgot to play a while ago. I uh, called this gentleman during the week because uh, apparently we missed notifications. This was end or uh, end of June. You suck. I do suck. You're a horrible you know, person. You're a horrible I called person. him personally. We had a big chit chat, and uh, he actually uh, stopped listening to the podcast around episode nine. So now he's back into it thanks to the phone call. Really? Right. So uh, here's his review. Hey, this is Corey from Texas. I just want to say um, I'm only on like episode three of the podcast, but I really love it. I already was thinking about getting an aquaponics, making an aquaponics system kind of from scratch and just sort of, you know, rigging it all together. Um, I don't know if y'all have made an episode on anything like that of trying to make a um, a system or a, an aquarium as self-sustaining as possible. But I, I did want to thank you guys for, I mean, it's hilarious. It's very informative. I've learned like so much from this podcast. Thank you guys so much, and uh, uh, and for shouting out for the Ohio Fish Rescue. I mean, that's that's amazing. Well, guys. He, he, he was from Colorado, Texas, Texas, Colorado. I, I feel like you need to really lay off after a week of boozing. <laughs> need well, some water. I mean, he's doing aquaponics. What's he growing? Just I mean, that's, that's Washington specialty. Oh, oh, thanks for finally showing up. My God. That's what we need to do. We need to have Alex back on and then uh, talk about uh, some people in California that have started, you know, pot aquaponics with aquarium fish, right? We should get Snoop Dogg on. Oh, I did it in college, yeah. See? There you go. Yeah. Pot aquaponics. It's it's a new podcast waiting to happen. Yeah. Aquapotics. Aquapotics. There you go. Here we go. We got to get a t-shirt made. (laughs) Awesome. Tilapia work best. Well, thanks again, Corey from Texas. Because tilapia crap like Clydesdales. That's right. Yeah. Well, that was a nice, nice uh, thing that you ignored since June. Right. Now that's almost September. Well, you still have yet to bring that email from like episode nine. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. It's probably the same guy. <laughs> it is the same guy. That's why know. we have them. People contact us on the Aquarium Guys website. Yes. If you, if you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please uh, send it to us and we will either listen to it, play it live or ignore it forwarded to the hr department that's right well let's dive directly into our topic and get a little bit more information about you alex so number one welcome and uh number two you know what got you into the hobby sir we asked this to everybody okay so straightforward i guess it was i went to one of those carnivals when i was like five years old and it was like throw pennies into the bowls of fish and uh, you get to win a goldfish, whichever one you clocked in the head with a penny. And so, <laughs> I, I did that successfully to a few, uh, like right off the bat. And uh, I took home a couple. Parents made me give away a couple. But I kept one named Elvis that lived until I was like, I don't know, way over it. But uh, like four, four or five years, it lived in a goldfish bowl. Like the way that, you know, most beta care most better keepers would think you're like uh buffalo bill or something for keeping them that way but yeah we won't tell other than this podcast is definitely going to be airing <laughs> <laughs> oh great hey, that is, that is right there jimmy your theorem works that places like walmart and uh fairs with the coin flip thing actually bring people into the hobby the bad way but they bring them in nonetheless they do and i 
I, I'll tell this on live. I used to sell the local carnivals that would come around here. They, they, oh, you what? <laughs> the guy would call me and say, I need 1,000 goldfish. And I'd go, got cash? And he goes, yeah. I go, I'll be by there on Thursday when they open. And I would drive by, hand him a box of goldfish. He'd hand me some cash, and I would go buy some Twinkies. And then he'd sit there crying at night because he feels so bad about it. No, no. <laughs> nope, I did not. I took cash is king, oh. people. Yeah, <laughs> cash is king. Oh, Jimmy, we're going to get so much shit mail now because of you. This is long before I, I cared about fish. I, I know. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that long ago. No, there's so many people that, that uh, you know, these are, these are common goldfish. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, they're just bait. Actually, it's illegal no, to use them as bait. I'm sorry. Well, uh, don't use them as bait. That's insensitive, and uh, Jimmy's drunk. So moving no, on. I'm not drunk yet. <laughs> yet. I'm hungover. It's different. All right, so Alex, sorry about the derailment. Well, um, he's the one that started it. He's the one plonking <laughs> fish on the head with a penny. His name was Elvis because he sat there with hunka, 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 burning love. Thanks. Now you I have that in my head. copper. <laughs> So you've been doing YouTubing for how long now? Uh, it's coming up on four years now. So what made you decide that I need to share my uh, my knowledge and hobby with the world? Pure narcissism. <laughs> God, I love this guy. I know, and he's Can got Justin. Bieber. He's got Justin Bieber here too. I just love it. He's yes. baby, he's baby. Come on, there you go, baby. He, come on. He flipped it the one time. And I just went, ooh. Yeah. No. Um. I, you, you know, talk I, afterwards, I, I think that uh, so I started. So in the hobby, I started with the goldfish. Then I went by the age of 10 or so. I started getting into guppies and uh, then the Internet kind of came out and I was able to get um, these purple metallic snakeskin guppies when they were brand new. And I got them from Thailand and I sold them in the U.S. via eBay when it was brand new. And I was making like $60 a pair at like, whatever, 12 or 14 or however old I was by the time that was going on. But I was really uh, amazed by them. And I, I liked the genetics of fish. So I kept fish for that reason. Then um, through high school, uh, I discovered herbal remedies and kind of forgot about the fish for a little while. By the time college came back around, I think you forgot about a lot of things. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you take enough herbal remedies, you forget about a lot. That's right. And Who are you? Uh, I don't know. And uh, by the time I got to college age, I guess at the end of high school, I got I had I had like one tank left, but they were kind of like my dark secret. Like it was like my cross dressing or something, you know? Uh, <laughs> like oh, I've got gu guppies in my closet. Nobody looked. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I promise I'm a stoner. I promise. Uh, so when did you come out of the closet with your guppies? Yeah, well, so by the time I went, I went to college and I I decided, uh, so I had two years of college done when I got to college because I had kind of basically dropped out of high school and done this college program. So I had two years of college credits. So basically I looked at it as I had four years and two of them to mess around. So I ended up d double majoring, but I had to take biology and ocean uh what was it marine biology also as a prerequisite and that got me into a, a project working on the genetics of guppies again and so by that time aquascaping had started to become popular 
And I realized you could keep actual plants with your fish, which I didn't realize. I mean, it just didn't occur to me all through the 90s and stuff. So, um, Was that because all your plants were not in yeah. the tank? Yeah, they were just sucking up all the ammonia and nitrogen, you know? Yeah, exactly. I didn't know you could put underwater plants in the tank. So, uh, and, and you learned this in college. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. Cool. Money well spent. Money well spent, yes. <laughs> I, I just love the, your theory about you, you've already got two years of college, but I'm still going to go four years, so I got two years just to screw around. Yeah, well, you know, I figured that I probably need it at that rate I was going at the time. So, <laughs> But actually it worked out. I got uh, an anthropology degree, which requires, you know, geology, biology, anatomy. Um, so it kind of gave me a really nice overview of a lot of the physical sciences. And then I got a history and anthropology dual degree too. So kind of covered a lot of ground and I've never used any of it professionally. So I've been a tattoo until artist now. Until, until tonight. Until, until tonight. tonight. <laughs> right. right. This is off of your career. Right here. Exploding. Oh yeah. So I'm getting a check for my college uh, tuition tonight. Right. From you guys. Right. Oh, yeah. We'll send it. Yeah. Go stand by the mailbox and just stand there and wait. It'll have mm -hmm. 69 cents waiting for you. That's right. That's about what I paid, yeah. That's how I get paid for this podcast, too. Rob's telling me, go stand down by your mailbox. And then after I get kind of sleepy, he drives by and, and doors me as he drives by and laughs. <laughs> so why the uh, the title Secret History Living in Your Aquarium? I, I feel like that in and of itself tells a story that you wanted to impress that uh, gives you kind of a separate niche. So what was the uh, idea behind not just sharing your hobby, but specifically naming it, you know, secret history? Well, so the first part was that I wanted a name that was so long that no one would ever find the channel. And, uh, Mission accomplished. Well. Yeah, no, um, no, I think it was because I'm in Washington state, I'm in Seattle and, uh, I, I don't imbibe like I used to, but I used to kind of have this point of view where I'd stare at the fish tank and I'd think, whoa, it's like a whole universe in there, you know? And then as I sobered up over the next decade, I, I got older and I started thinking, well, where did the gravel that's like clown barf, where did that come from in my tank? Is that from China? Where did the air pump get made? Where did those fish get bred? Who first bred those fish? Um, you know, why am I using and why don't I use an under gravel filter like I did 20 years ago? You know, kind of all these things came to mind and I wanted to find the origins of them. So basically the idea when I started was that it was going to be a diary and I'd pick one item in the aquarium each episode and explore following it back to the origins of the, the essence that it was needed for in the hobby. But then it kind of got derailed a little bit just by my own interests and, uh, you know, doing species spotlights and tank updates and interviews with other people and things like that. So I kind of peppered that in because it was what people seemed to be interested in also. I do have some fans from when the channel started that really do just want the driest history where I read through the patents of like the first you know, uh, linear air piston, you know, linear piston air filter stuff, you know, and trace it back to the first one, you know? So I was one of those drive, uh, listeners. You still are still, still <laughs> looking for it. 
there's a uh, really some great content uh however uh you're you're hard on yourself you're not that dry no no uh, yeah. it is uh it is great content certainly check it out but again tonight's topic we want to get more into uh modern aquaria and when we talk about uh the modern history of aquarium the modern era of aquarium people think well world war ii you were even mentioning this before we uh, started the podcast you know people started using uh, air travel fish could fly in airplanes bingo there's where modern aquaria started but that's really not the case so what i asked uh, you coming on is to try to walk us through a timeline of again where we where we honestly believe it began and then walk us through the transition of how we got to now because most people that get in the hobby even if you've been in there a while you're definitely going to not know everything that came out uh, beforehand i've been in the hobby my whole life and this information is very hard to come up with unless you're reading patents and going through dry material. So please walk us through, you know, where really the modern era of Aquaria got started. Yeah. So really the, the first modern Aquaria, I guess the, the first foray into it was wealthy professors and, and trust fund kids, dukes, lords, things like that. A lot of them had come to America, um, people like robber barons and um, just like really wealthy families of, you know, maybe the son of someone who owned, a, you know, a giant uh, railroad company or something would have all this extra money. And that's really when people first saw these private collections like, um, you know, in New York and Chicago, they had some early aquariums in Paris and London and Berlin. And those were kind of the five places where the public was first exposed to it. Uh, it all got put on hold because of the Civil War and because it was just so expensive to um, have an aquarium that only these rich people could have it. And it stayed that way until the 1870s, at which time in uh, Maryland and Delaware, Ooh. goldfish and uh, paradise fish, uh, as well as bettas, became really popular uh and so in in the americas they got them mostly from germany surprisingly even though it's closer to get to the new world from you know uh this hemisphere but we basically followed europe's lead there was a big uh expo in uh 1856 that really in uh, introduced subtropical and tropical fish for the first time but it was kind of a, a giant uh failure in that most of the fish died by the third day, but at least the people on the first day were impressed enough to, to, to for that to echo through the next 50 years. And by the turn of the century, uh, around 1900, there'd been a couple really key uh, changes in technology that allowed people to keep uh, goldfish and uh, other fish that were seen more as totally tropical than these subtropical fish that have been kept for a long time. Uh, many people kept fish in these big Victorian ornate aquariums that, that people have probably seen pictures of, but that's not, that's not what most people could afford. Those things were more expensive than a car at the time. So what we're talking about later is actually most people would buy a box and they'd put a sheet of glass in it at home on their own and it, only on one side would you have that. And uh, basically, a lot of people would have pumps that they pump by hand. And it was the invention of a can uh, in uh, Ohio, in, um, in Columbus, Ohio. A guy named Mollerett 
invented uh it was an old dairy can and he put an air pump a heater and uh basically a, a he didn't know it but a sponge that was he thought it was for evaporating off heat but it worked as a biological filter and that was the gold standard until the Wait, 1930s he did that by mistake he did it by mistake yeah yeah is the design out there that we can find published somewhere yes yes actually um i have uh the the place i first came across it because it's called the german fish shipping can to me that i was like what why you know it's german so i looked all over for a german patent trying to use google translate or friends that spoke german well it was made in ohio and the guy immigrated his family in the 1700s from germany so that's the only reason it was nicknamed the German fish can. But I mean, there's this book called uh, Toy Fish. I know most people can't see, but in the book Toy Fish, there's actually a picture of the thing, and they have some cutaways and patterns. Oh, you gotta hold that up again. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna have, we're gonna have people in the Discord clip this for you. So hold it up a little further. Up Can you higher. Yep, yeah, it's close enough. Just oh, okay. Right about there. There you go. Yeah, it literally for all uh, for all people listening, it's literally just a hand drawing of a milk can with a specialized. <laughs> yeah, and it and it's got aeration, but it actually had a it, it was a, a pump for a bicycle tire, and they would use that and they'd pump air into it. And when you traveled on a steamship back then, because most people couldn't afford planes, even in the twenties and thirties when small aircraft did exist, World War One really changed the technology. But most people still traveled by ship or railroad. And so they would actually uh, fit an entire railroad car, usually at the behest of some rich person in San Francisco or Santa Barbara or L.A. Uh, they would actually put an entire railroad car with two or three helpers that would ride with the fish and pump those things 24-7 for three to five days until they got to the other coast. and so. The first, um, the first angelfish successfully made it to San Francisco from the uh, from the East Coast uh, in 1917, and the guy paid an equivalent of uh, $1,700 today for each fish as a baby, uh, and he shipped over a hundred and three made it, and uh, he didn't breed them until 1921. So this guy just spent so much money over and over again trying to do it. But he established by paying and losing a lot of money, he established about 40 key species on the West Coast. And it was his funding that also helped fund them in Chicago, New York, and Ohio, which were the main places, Philadelphia being another place uh, in the U.S., where these species were coming. But they realized in the meantime that the coolest fish to them at the time, like angelfish or knife fish or saltwater fish, weren't going to be easy. So in the meantime, they were at a mad scramble to kind of find things like sword tails, guppies, uh, you know, platies, mollies. And they really got into breeding those uh, so, and putting them in ponds uh, you so that normal me people could buy them. Yeah. That, Jimmy, you're not alone here. When it sounds like when this other guy got started, I mean, it was the same time, right there. He he spent about as much as you did. That's right. I'm a hobby in law. Eighteen thousand. I think he spent more. He did spend a lot. So, seventeen hundred dollars was that for all the fish, 
or was no, that, that for, no, that's no. a fish. God, do you have his number? Is he still alive? <laughs> yeah, I got some swampland in Florida that I'd like to sell him. You know what's interesting, Alex, is that I saw that when you held up the book of that milk can and stuff, and yeah. the top is has got holes in it and stuff. Um, my goldfish company offered about two, three years ago, and I'm still kicking myself because I didn't buy them. They had some old milk uh, cans like that, that that used to bring goldfish on the railroad cars. And what they did at that time is they would put ice up in there. And so as the ice dripped down and the uh, train rocked back and forth, that actually oxygenated the water and kept the goldfish alive. And they just sold those those cans, which are so nostalgic and cool. I saw pictures of them. And uh, they, they sold them for like 30, 40 bucks a piece. It was just cheap. Yeah, they, they oh, actually wow. you know, predate those because they were just used with the ice. There you go. Yeah. Those are the ice cans that you're talking about. They actually, that big chamber up top. That's yep. how they do it. And that other piece is like a, a radiator type thing that they'd aerate the cool water in and then it would get pumped back into the lower part. Yeah, it was incredible. I just wish I would have bought one. Dang it. 30 bucks, not well spent. No. <laughs> Instead, you got Jaeger. Yes. How could you? Jaeger's good. So, again, that puts the beginning of the uh, modern era of uh, aquarium. Uh, at what date again was that uh, that can invented? Uh, well, that can was invented uh, roughly in the 1879, but it didn't really get mass introduced until the 1890s. Uh, and then by the, uh, you know, so I'd say the 1890s is when they could first try to ship, but really that first angelfish marks. So 1917, I would say is a great year because World War One is coming to an end. People have traveled all over the American uh, empire, so to speak, the Philippines, Cuba, all these territories that America uh, had their hands in, uh, Hawaii, and they wanted to bring back some of the cool fish and animals they'd seen. So this really sparked the exotic pet and um, fish trade quite a bit. Uh, even though the war was in Europe, we had troops all over the world and we moved cargo and and lots of equipment, you know, all the way uh, around through the Pacific and all the way uh, across the Atlantic. And they were also exposed to museums and things that were ahead of America. Uh, as far as Aquaria goes, Germany has always been kind of leading the way in Europe with, with France neck and neck. So, so let, now let's take a stamp then. If someone wanted to in, say, 1917, uh, 1920, you know, after we first started spending a ton of money, you were a millionaire at the time, or what was equivalent to a millionaire, and you wanted to spend and buy a aquarium. What were the uh, ways of keeping them? Was it still the uh, Victorian era of aquariums where they had cast iron pedestal tanks? We had a, a gentleman on our podcast before that uh, restored one and got, uh, got it going quite well. That's uh, his hobby. But was that all that was limited to them at the time? What, uh, what did they have? Well, I would say by 1924, Sears and Roebuck uh, started offering the first uh, fish pump, and it said it could be used in fountains or in uh, pond, like ponds and fountains, or it could be used in a fish tank. And at the time, it was seen as the hobby of collecting your local fish more so. Like you'd go to the lake or, or the, if the salt water, and you'd bring things back and put them in a, a wooden box with a, a piece of glass. And there were simple instructions you'd send away and pay like a nickel for about how to build these aquariums 
uh, at home. There's oh, one yeah. book called uh, A Boy's Guide to Modern Living that was like a Boy Scout companion guide. And it actually has some pretty cool uh, illustrations from the 19-teens uh, about different setups you could make. A lot of them didn't have any glass at all. It was it was really the glass that was expensive, but things like guppies, betta fish, and so forth, fish bowls had been around for a number of years at that point. The Industrial Revolution had made those much more affordable, just like you could get a, a bottle of uh, Coca-Cola, you could get a, a machine-blown glass bowl for simple fish. Uh, it's for the complex community tank that we think of today. Uh, it really wasn't until the late 20s, early 30s that that was democratized to a level that somebody um, who was an adult could afford that hobby. I mean, with a job, it was if you had a decent paying job, it was within the realm of affordable. You know, it went from being uh, $1,700 for an angelfish in San Francisco in 1917 to uh, about $9 in 1926. And by 1930, they were going for about $6. So converted today, it's still fairly expensive. It's like 100 bucks a fish or something, 150 a fish. But that's not out of the realm of what people spend on the hobby today for a highly desired fish. Not Definitely not on the realm of possibility. So uh, around that, you said 19, uh, tw- late 1920s, 1930s. Is that the beginning of what we traditionally call uh, Metaframe's a brand? But I always consider that the Metaframe is the bottom slate tank with the uh, four rectangular sides. That's that's really how when that started. Or was there uh, another uh, in between? It was a little later than that. Uh, there were early versions of a lot of these things. But like I said, it was all innovation within the hobby. Uh, pretty much there was not a dedicated uh, aquaria, you know, goldfish or community uh, tropical fish company uh, until there these clubs began to pop up around the country but um a lot of things were made they'd they'd literally call like uh an iron a pig iron foundry and they'd give them the specifications locally and they'd say can you build me a frame and then they'd go to a window uh company and say can you put glass in it so the the point at which you could order in a crate like a ready-made aquarium Really, the 1930s is when that that became possible, but and it kind of had that Art Deco aesthetic um, with the the Metaframe tanks and things like that. It, and really, uh, by the late 30s, the one that you'd probably think of today was solidified. They existed though as early as the tw- the 20s, um, but they weren't as mass in mass popularity. So I stole from Jimmy a uh, metaframe tank not uh because uh he was crying about it but because uh i just happened to have want to recreate this early era uh, aquarium and this particular metaframe had a hood and they're so hard to find with hoods you can yeah, find metaframes yeah. you know broken at garage sales whatever else because i mean the seals were terrible but this one has a plug-in and on the light there's a patent pending with a number so I looked up the pending mark, and it the, uh, got finalized in the late 30s. So this one predates that so by uh, some significant time. Wow. So I was uh, floored to find that because my knowledge, you know, is like what the the four, late 40s at earliest, definitely 50s and 60s were Metaframe era. 
um at least i I keep using that brand that's a brand in my mind it's a style of tank with uh, aluminum sides and a slate bottom and when you're heating these you were using bunsen burners at one point in time which they made a practicality for these slate bottoms when uh, do we see heaters change the the 1920s is really when america got a handle on electricity i mean you can you can cite rich people all the way back to the 1890s with electricity and so forth. But really when we understood what was going on, uh, we had the the coil heaters that would go under your substrate in your aquarium. They had those heaters in aquariums as early as the 1920s. There's all sorts of patents uh, from the early 20s that never were practically uh, produced. But if you look for patents, the ideas were there 20, 30 years ahead of when the consumer products were. And so very dedicated people could make these things. But for the most part, uh, there was a lag time between uh, when these fish club newsletters would write of some rich guy or some very dedicated person set up using the newest technology. uh, And, you know, people would copy that. But uh, there was a a real lag time before that was anything uh, as a consumer market In, in America just wasn't like it is today where you would package any great idea as quick as you could in any field of technology or hobby you know today it's very quick turnaround time we stamp things out in uh, plastic molds and things and uh, get five iterations of them quickly within a half a decade but you know there there was a little bit of lag time there and they the hobby had to show that it would have uh standing power uh for for years to come before i think people really like you know ge and things thought about actually building pumps or motors to power these things specifically for the the hobby and that that happened by the late 20s early 30s there were decent components of heaters pumps lights uh everything we have today almost it's pretty amazing what you could find if you had the money or lived in one of the big East coast cities, uh, at the time. So they definitely was kind of started out as a, as a rich man's hobby and then took a few years before it kind of caught on and, and nobody really wanted to put the money into it, not knowing if there'd be a, a actually large demand to mass produce these things. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I think you could see the same thing even today in like aquascaping or rimless low iron tanks or, you know, whatever the new the newer trend is, uh, you could even say the same thing about glowfish. I mean, like them or hate them, uh, it took some eccentric million or billionaire to toy around to create those things. And now you can see them at every Petco, PetSmart, you know. So I think the hobby is led by uh, eccentrics and rich people uh, in a way. Um, many hobbies are. Once the proof of concept works a lot of people say hey that's actually pretty cool and uh we go through these trends i mean all throughout uh keeping fish a lot of people think of the modern era as post-world war ii and that's because there were so many consumers able to buy things and so many children that that was the first time that the hobby was really seen as a children's hobby outside of if you wanted to go catch some minnows and put them in a bucket for the afternoon um it it was really not seen the hobby was an adult hobby and it's really world war ii the baby boomers being born 
that that democratize that from being a newsletter for scholarly gentlemen of universities and social clubs to uh you know in the turn of the century in the 20s to uh being kind of like uh you know whammo brand fish tank with frisbees and slinkies and stuff like that kind of being akin to your gold ta- goldfish tank or your guppies uh in the 50s and 60s well i mean we have a lot of different marketing to uh to blame so right at, you said coming out of world war one was the was when the aquarium started picking up and you know the metaframes uh, apparently uh according to the, some of the information i've found technically started around the 1920s where Mattel got into the game and uh, essentially uh, wanted to get uh, turn fish into a toy. They saw the novelty of uh, people enjoying it, it being an attraction for kids, and that's where we had dollars push behind and try to finalize something by the 30s. So moving forward, trying to see really when this kicked off, I always like to point out that Sea Monkeys did, did it. Jimmy, Jimmy, you, you made a face. I ordered Sea Monkeys when I was a kid, back in the day. Every comic book, any type of like uh, Archie and and uh, the Archie comic books and stuff, you could order live sea monkeys, or else you could get the eggs to hatch them. You could get live sea horses. Uh, you could buy a little incubator, and they'd send you the incubator and four quail eggs or whatever. And that was kind of my introduction as a kid, growing up in North Dakota. I was probably about 12, 13 years old, and my mom said, yeah, we can order some sea monkeys. And we sat there and watched these things in amazement, you know, not realizing they're just brine shrimp. But that was how my mom and I got into it. Uh, my grandmother had Metaframe Aquarium. She used to raise zebra fish. Great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And anyway, and that, that was my first fish, were, were zebra fish. She gave me some in a, in a, uh, a ball glass quart jar I took home. And I bought a fishbowl and kept zebra fish for a while. Then my mom and I uh, started uh, raising guppies. And what's funny is that we had, I'm guessing, probably 50, 60 large two-gallon bowls full of guppies. And back in the, back then, they would breed like you would not believe. And we never lost any. I mean, right now, the guppies that you buy at your local store and whatnot uh, genetically are pretty weak from what I, you know, from what I can see. Uh, and I've sold thousands of guppies over the years. Um, but we used to raise just tons and tons. And my mom would just trade them to the pet store to get a new heater. Or she would give them away to uh, other people. And that's how a lot of other people uh, got into the hobby in our area. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. Because guppies and uh, most live bears, really, did not require heaters, uh, honestly, back then. They had strong enough genetics you know, they're, the wild, if you think about it, if, if a fish swims 10 feet down in the water, how cold is that water? You guys have jumped in a lake before. Uh, even in a warm location, it can change 30 degrees, uh, 20 degrees. And so, uh, you know, a lot of these fish are subtropic that we think of as tropical. And so uh, sword tails, uh, bettas, danios, uh, a lot of the things that we keep in heated tanks today as long as they're not getting under 55, 50 degrees, which most houses tend to stay above in the modern era uh, after electrical and coal heating, they're actually okay. And so before the, the lines were bred so specifically for looks, I mean, fish are pretty resilient when they come out of the wild, uh, unless they're a very niche biotope type of fish, you know? 
So um, we've actually had to kind of re-engineer getting more oxygen into the water or getting more um, nutrients into the food and things like that as we've kind of screwed up the biology of the fish not caring about oh do do should we care about how they uh the guppies uh, metabolize beta carotene no we don't care just make them more blue well they're supposed to have some orange showing and that means you know the orange is what attracts in in guppies and endlers the females because in their wild habitat uh, it shows that they had access to the most food resources and the most bugs um, that had fallen into the water. And, you know, things like these subtle cues we're having to relearn, um, but we kind of tossed that aside to breed, uh, you know, ornate versions of all the fish that we think of today. Yeah, I think genetically that that, that people are finally going back to getting wild fish and putting wild fish you know, crossbreeding with, with their favorite fish right now. You know, we've had Steve Rubicki on this program. He talks about, you know, the wild angelfish. Now now he's doing programs with the wild swordtails. Then Rob showed me another website where they're doing nothing but wild swordtails. And I was just blown away about how beautiful even these wild fish can be. And and they're dropping 200 fry at a crack. Where if you're hell-bent on getting 35 babies out of a swordtail anymore that you buy from your local Petco and PetSmart. But when when... You buy these wild fish, you get that wild strain back into them. It quadruples the amount of, of babies you're getting out of there. So if you think about it, you know you can you can produce more more babies with ten fish of wild variety than you can with fifty fish of this the local stuff from Petco, by far. Oh, and totally. so people just need people just need to step back and and just really you know if you if your thought was I want to produce a bunch of fish and I want them uh, vigorous and healthy, you know you need to get that wild strain back into them. So well, we got a question. Oh, one yeah, of the listeners. I don't mean to cut you off there, but we want to get these in when we while they're still fresh. So, how much of an effect on home fish keeping did the public aquariums have back then? And where these pumps from GE and other manufacturers um, were made, or were they made for them first, or was it made for specifically for home use? Um, so, aquariums, the technology, uh, the home. Okay, so people would go to these aquariums. Uh, really, it was by the 1880s that these took off. The Shedd Aquarium in uh, Chicago was America's kind of uh, crowning jewel. I don't know if I'm saying that right, or Shedd or Shedd, uh, but that that's still open today. It it had big panes of glass like you'd think of as a modern aquarium today, whereas before, a lot of aquariums had the old Victorian-style stands in a big uh, hall or a big um, open room. But the idea of building big enclosures, like big tanks, uh, and you'd walk past a gallery or windows, really um, London and the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago were the first to do that. And that, wasn't, that didn't really lend itself to home aquaria as far as the physical parts go, uh, like the pumps and things. But the, the concepts behind what they were learning, they needed to keep these fish alive, like aeration and heat and things like that. They were meticulously noted by these hobbyists at, and marine biologists became an actual scientifically, uh, you know, respected field of its own. And these people kept notes and were often a part of local aquarist clubs. That being said, um, you know, kids could probably dream big. And I would say it's to the same extent that 
if a kid goes to the zoo, they may want an elephant, but might end up getting a hamster a couple weeks later. Um, and if enough kids want hamsters, uh, somebody's going to invent the hamster ball to sell soon. And so I think they both help each other in that respect, if that makes sense. Well, totally. I agree. I mean, I've, I've said before, and people hate me for it, but, you know, Walmarts of the world introduce a lot of kids to fish. And, you know, they probably don't do it the best. Well, they don't do it at all anymore. But, I mean, as a child, uh, even when my kids were growing up, and my kids are in their late 20s now, you know, we would take them uh, over to Walmart, and we always had to go look at the fish. And that was before I was really in the even wholesaling and whatnot. And I think just by, you know, as much as people hate zoos or hate circuses or whatnot, if you don't introduce this to young people, there's going to be no interest and there's going to be no conservation later on in life. I agree. And I think bettas and goldfish are also, they get a bad rap in some ways. And, you know, some people adore them, but also other people think that they're just simple fish for kids kind of thing. But I mean, that statement, simple fish for kids, isn't a trivial statement. I mean, that that keeps new people coming into the hobby that get, grows a fondness for fish and for keeping life uh, alive in your care. Um, you know, it kind of kindles that that spirit when you're young. And a lot of people come back to it when they're in their 20s and 30s, when they have some expendable income rather than, you know, uh, it's hard when you're a teenager. So I'm always impressed when I see young teenagers uh, that are really into the hobby. That's always impressive to me. I try to encourage them. But um, I think that our memories from when we're kids, we, you know, that that is a big reason why the hobby has been able to spell, sell expensive versions of the toys that, you know, were marketed to kids. Well, now they can sell a rimless tank to an adult who has that association with fish, you know. They're willing to spend that extra money, even though it's still an aesthetic change rather than a, a practical fish keeping change. Right. It gets to be about decor and being uh, what what's cool. What's the newest thing I can get that Rob doesn't have. Right. Yeah. So getting back to the timeline and creating demand. So again, we, we talked a little bit about the, the sea monkeys trend, and I just wanted to point that out and go back to that because oh, yeah. the sea monkeys... I mean, we should talk a little bit about the story and why it affects it. So That's there's this gentleman, story. Herod von Braunhunt, and please chime in wherever because I'm very gray on this story. Um, he used to be a head of a toy company that was seemed to be failing in the 40s. And this this guy is sitting there trying to figure out how to be an entrepreneur. And he is what is about to be in the storyline the American mail order inventor. Like everybody's heard about like uh, mail order stuff and comic books and other things. He literally invented this whole craze. So he came up with using simple brine shrimp and the sea monkey gimmick, you know, packaging the eggs, putting the salt in, and then putting a, what was a third packet that happened to be nothing. So and that's, that's a really interesting story. Because at first, the, the, his, his shrimp didn't live long at all. They lived like a week. And so he actually worked with a team of biologists to develop a, a hybrid shrimp that would last longer and its eggs would last longer. They, they sourced it from a different shrimp. He started with uh, some shrimp that were from a salt lake, but not the salt lakes in, in Utah. And he ended up using a species, I believe, that was 
derived and then hybridized with a salt lake in Canada and a salt lake in Utah, and they had a longer dormancy period. But the whole trick was that packet that you were talking about is kids didn't want to wait 24 hours. So you put the first packet in, and that is the eggs and the nutrition and everything to start growing. And you tell them you got to wait 24 hours before you put the eggs in. So the packet marked eggs was, in fact, the packet with nothing in it because the shrimp needed 24 to 36 hours to start hatching. So the kids thought there was nothing to look at and would leave the tank while they put the water conditioner in. And then they'd come back to add that second packet, which they expected to be eggs. And like it said in the ad, instant life was there when they looked at the tank because it had already been growing for 24 hours. So that was another little marketing trick. The guy was a mad genius at marketing. And then the third pack was food, if I can remember correctly. Yeah. To make me go a little further. So that's incredible. I had no idea about that. That's crazy, crazy marketing campaign. He'd sell it, and it was, in, it was originally called Instant Life. I guess it originally sold for about 49 cents. And he decided, well, how am I going to get these packets out to kids? And that was the genius part. Of course, he got the people to invent the gimmick of how to get kids instant gratification. Next is how do I get them to the kids in the first place? And at this time, you know, in the 50s is just when you're starting to see the golden age of comic books starting. So he was told that, no, we need to do traditional marketing and do radio ads, stuff like that. He decided to reject all of it and put every dollar of marketing he had to buy spaces, which were stupid cheap at the time in comic books because comic books had no no one took them seriously at the time no one thought kids were very marketable i mean clearly now i grew up in an age where kids are not only marketable they're more marketable than an adult youtube even prioritizes children uh seemingly they say that they're not advertising to children but prioritizes children content over it and i mean we had the generations of nickelodeon and cartoon network filling their slots with toy ads so sure. it's nothing, nothing new for me but this is this was not an era of marketing to kids. So he put all this cheap advertising in comic books, and that's what really invented the mail order craze. People would get the kid in the mail. They would uh, tell their mom, I want this. They'd send in the little postcard they pull out of the magazine, ship it in, and sure enough, they have sea monkeys. Two well, weeks later. Two weeks later. At least. Right, because the postal service. Stale mail. I mean, they're probably still delivered with horses for all I know. Yeah. <laughs> What you know, the, the local postal service still delivers little baby chicks every spring out here in the uh, Northland of Minnesota. So, incredibly, um, how you you know, the postal service was our first introduction into uh, mass merchandising, basically. So, it wasn't until like the early 60s that it actually got branded sea monkeys and the, and the craze really started ramping up. Um, but that left kids with the idea of, man, it's fun to have something living that I can watch and help grow and modify and really spark the interest. And the follow through through, you know, Mattel owned company like Metaframe was to really follow through with a less gimmick product and have them move on to, to fish. And in my opinion, from all the research I've done, I didn't grow up during that time was that's what really kicked it off. Now, is there something else that you see? That really spun up the craze. I, I really credit the majority to Sea Monkeys. Um, I think, honestly, World War II had a big... I mean, so American imperialism, honestly, 
has this underwriting tone and same with European, like colonialism of Africa, of South America, and more so America in South America. But all going back, it really did set the stage. And I think that was key because that primes the parents also to think, oh, it's cool to have these exotic life forms or that, you know, maybe the parents, at least the parents had the concept of having a pet fish or it was a, an, a more advanced hobby. You have to get the 40-year-old adult or 30-year-old adult to buy the 10-year-old kid, the sea monkeys or the pet fish. And so I think it was important that we had the groundwork of kind of this world traveling and um, the, all the technology that was there for kind of richer people or a more in-depth hobby. Uh, but because, I mean, there really was a craze first in the Victorian era, then again in the 20s, again after World War II, World War II kind of put a dent in things, but then after World War II, Germany couldn't do a lot of manufacturing of any war stuff. So Japan and Germany both start manufacturing quite a bit of aquarium stuff. I mean, as well as, you know, scooters and, you know, mopeds and all sorts of different stuff in Italy and Japan. Um, but they had to retool. And one of the things they did, and, and they became known too, along with Mattel and other places, was um, these kind of pastimes and hobbies. And one thing that I wanted to interject in that we don't think about in the West, but the Soviet Union uh, was a whole inspiration to, to China and to the communist world of the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So even before the U.S. baby boom era, communists knew that young men were going to get together and possibly plot to overthrow them. So in places like the Czech Republic, Ukraine, um, Hungary, Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, um, they would set up fish clubs and it kept young men busy. And they actually would set targets like, uh, Hey, you guys should, um, you guys should try to breed German rams, you know, or, or rams, Bolivian rams, breed us a blue version. And these clubs became, uh, a, a, a big activity for young men specifically and later women too. Um, but Beyond that, they got into aquaponics for food during harsh times in the Soviet Union um, of tilapia and some of the bigger cichlids that they could eat. And that, I'm not saying that that, is the, that was the story all across the board. But I mean, today, the third biggest seller of uh, tropical fish is the Czech Republic. And people might wonder, what Czech Republic? Like this middle of Europe country? And, uh, you know, it goes Singapore or Japan and then the Czech Republic, basically. Um, and and it's, it's just kind of an oddball one to think about. But it was because of these fish clubs set up as early as the late 40s. And they wanted people not to rise up. And so they kept them busy and they literally spied on them at these meetings. And in these big apartment towers, the cement ones that you probably think of from the late 50s and 60s, the communist block towers, in the basement, they'd have either a farm program or a fish program. And uh, that's where we got a lot of really cool strains of like Turkish blue angels and, you know, some of the cool things that we have. And they literally had been separate from the 40s when they were collected in World War II era all the way until the 1990s. And today, even we start to see these strains that America had never seen. So I think it's important to realize that the world was keeping fish and not just American kids. So other other timelines kind of all converge 
by the the time of the internet and uh, mass media and cable TV and things like that too. You know, Rob has just pulled up the Sea Monkey ad from back in the day, and blow that up for me, Rob, because I want to read something really quick. I got to pull up. There's uh, two versions here. This there is, we go. This is the one we can see. But, by the uh, way, you know that the guy who started the company was. You should look it up. He was a crazy, rabid and oh, anti-Semite. And uh, he was a he member was of the KKK. Yeah, and he, yeah, he, he, he was something. He claimed to be Jewish, or he was Jewish, and then he also paid dues to the KKK, and then the to uh, to uh, what's his name, the the guy who runs the new Nazi party. Uh, but in any case, he he was an odd guy with a double life, but he was a very smart guy. But if you want to look into that story. It, it turns pretty dark when you start digging, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy uh, deal. He even changed his name to add Vaughn in there to sound more German. So he, <laughs> he could step away from his Jewish ancestry. He was just keeping everybody at bay the way it sounds. Oh, yeah. But the, the one thing I found really interesting, I'm reading this um, off this ad that Rob pulled up. It, it says, with every sea monkey kit, you'll include these valuable supplies. You get your sea monkey growth food. A feeding spoon and sea plasma. Sea <laughs> plasma. I'm assuming that's salt. I'm guessing sea plasma. A magnificently fully illustrated owner's manual of sea monkeys. So you get a owner's manual with your sea monkeys. So in case your sea monkeys stall out, you know how to get them going. Uh, you know, feeding and raising you know, and training. How to train your sea monkey. This guy was. This guy was brilliant. Well, you know they weren't. Um... They weren't selling as well, so he hired a former comic book illustrator to actually. Uh, they at first they looked like brine shrimp when he sold them, and kids don't want to play with bugs. So, well, I mean, maybe they do, but their parents don't want to buy them, and so he hired this imaginative. I think the guy had something to do with the Smurfs later on, actually. Um, okay. But he uh, he illustrated the sea monkeys idea you know that that they were these monkeys that lived under the sea and he drew like a family of them and i mean it was really a psychological marketing campaign and the whole book was like kind of to mirror the comic books that they were sold in and also to kind of attach the kids psychologically to these little specks but i mean including the the castle underwater that was this plastic molded castle i mean that was another change that doubled his his sales so, I mean, he kept giving them more anthropomorphic uh, characteristics as time went on. So, yeah, you're totally right on all the little things he did to addict kids. <laughs> it, it's a famous uh, comic book illustrator, Joe Orlando. He yeah. uh, what used to be the vice president of DC Comics himself and illustrated many, many, many uh, famous um, comics of history. Even uh, starting, I think, the Super Friends and other uh, more popular ones. That's incredible how these guys got started out doing doing these odd little jobs that just turned into a mass fortune for them down the road. Now, on the Sea Monkeys, did you get the castle with it? I don't remember getting no castle. I got a, a clear container that had, like, a really crappy etched castle into some plastic. But, I mean, the whole thing was, like, oval, if you looked at it from the top, and then a clear plastic in the center, and then dark and it came in like every color of the rainbow plastic topper and bottom and then that had 
fake scenery molded into it. That was the quote unquote castle, and the top had little little notches like a castle. That was so, probably the deluxe yeah. package, Jim. You didn't get that one. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. I was from North Dakota, and we were so broke that even our baloney didn't have a first name. You're, you're going to stick with that joke for a while. I love that joke. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting is I know out there there's some listener that has these that has a collection of these castles. If they came in all these different colors, I wonder if this is a collectible type item that people would have. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it just that's incredible. You know, running down memory lane here for me, um, rearing about the sea monkeys. Do you guys you guys ever remember the Mexican jumping bean? I yeah. got yeah. those in the dollar store. Yes. I, I didn't think they were real. And then she's like, no, here, hold it. And then she put it in my hand and the thing would jump in my hand. Yes. You know, our, our local store um, sold them and they weren't selling at all because they have to, I think, what is it? It's a little worm in a nut, right? Yeah. It's like, it looks like a little, it kind of looks like a bean, but it's more like a nut. And there's a worm inside of it. And when it touches your hand and your hand sits on it long enough, it warms know, up, it warms up and then it moves. Yeah. So our local store had, had gotten these in, but they saw them at a trade show somewhere. And the little trick they showed them is they took like a 60 watt light bulb and shined on this thing. So it was right on the counter when you're checking out. And after about an hour of the light shining on these little, little tiny bright yellow boxes with, with the uh, nut in there, it was uh, just pandemonium. Every one of these things were bouncing and making noise. And as kids, we would buy them and we would put them somewhere in the classroom. And you'd be in the classroom and you'd hear pop, pop. And the teacher was just going to be looking around because that was back in the day where you didn't, nobody really talked in school because the teacher was speaking. Uh, if you spoke up and smarted off, then you would just get whacked in the head with a ruler. But I really, uh, really love going down memory lane with all this stuff. But, um, well, I think you guys should should do some Mexican jumping beans. Regardless, I think they're illegal because aren't they a plant pest now? Really? Yeah, yeah I think I they qualified as a plant pest. The USDA won't let you have them in. Yeah, you know, you know that Harold, uh, the guy who did the sea monkey thing, he also sold anoles as chameleons uh, yes. in the mail order catalog. He also invented X-ray specs. And after Sea Monkeys, uh, he wanted to make more money. He was donating so much money to the American Nazi Party, honestly, and trying to live a life with his wife, which is just craziness. But he uh, invented this product. One of his last products was the Invisible Goldfish. And it was a little aquarium made out of plastic with nothing in it. And on the box, it said, guaranteed to stay invisible. And it came with a comic book for kids about... <laughs> this invisible goldfish and its life and to feed it and the stuff you fed it was just something that dissolved in water um but it was like the pet rock almost you know um so he he was behind a bunch of these little animal things he also sold uh hermit crabs and turtles with painted shells too so he was uh yeah PETA would have loved him don't even get me started <laughs> on PETA I fucking hate PETA <laughs> no 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 it'd be not. nice our, our PETA beating stick will happen later. <laughs> so let's let's make sure we're going over the timeline because again, now we, we we talked a little bit about how they're marketed. This started the craze. People finally figured out, you know, having something in your home, an aquarium, uh, even though how it's small, having a plastic jar with a fake castle in it with some floating bugs clearly did the trick. But uh, just to make sure we're having each element uh, covered, we we talked about the, the first pump. 
We talked about how the modern tank uh, happens. We um, talked somewhat about electrical work and the light really isn't a big mystery. Lights were created, you know, a long time before this bulbs in a tank. It's not anything that we can say is really inventive, but other than that, you know, what types of filtration, how did the filtration go? Cause I know in the sixties we, we have the, uh, what's the, the German Matten filter. Yes. Um, but we have a lot of steps that we're missing up to the 1960s. So really, how did filter trends uh, go? Because original um, tanks planted, and somehow we got away from that, and I'm not a, n- real sure why. Um, it was seen as one, like, part of an extravagance that wasn't needed for kids to keep, oh, you want plants too, and you want, yeah. you know, dirt, and you want this messy thing. But, I mean, really what we know today is the Wallstead yeah. method allowed you didn't actually even need a filter for a lot of fish um if you had enough plants and good sunlight uh on it or high light on it so i mean as things went on we had the undo gravel filter was one of the first big ones that uh kind of allowed mass introduction of the fish tank but there were also um basically a lot of water changes needed for uh hobbyists uh that and the municipal water sources, chlorine and fluoride and things like that were not added until later to like everyone's water like they are today. Uh, but when was later? Because I even have a 1955 video stating of how you're supposed to leave water sit just to make yeah. sure there's no chlorine going through so it. So that would be chlorine. Big cities did use chlorine early on. Like I'm talking turn of the century early on. Um, gotcha. But if you lived out in North Dakota, probably no, you probably had a well, you know? Um, Damn right. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, the thing that's interesting to me is now we're having to get back to realize, wait, um, I mean, some people probably have seen channels like Lucas Brett's channel. He has a bunch of aquariums that have no air in them, no air stone, no filtration, no light. They just get the ambient light in the room. They get the heat from the room. And they have plants and substrate. So it's pretty amazing. I mean, if you set up a biotope and you do water changes, uh, fish can thrive. Um, It's just a matter of keeping the temperature high enough for the species and getting them nutritious food. And so before all these pumps and aeration and stuff, um, that was just kind of known, like that you needed to have plants in there. If you look at the old illustrations of the Victorian era tanks, they had a bunch of plants and things. And it was really kind of the sterile art deco era that they decided, let's get rid of that. Let's look futuristic kind of and just put some gravel in the bottom. And that's when you started coming up with, um, you know, late 30s. Uh, World War II, like I said, put a hold on it. It kind of kind of for a, over a decade and the Depression played a part in putting a hold on it, too. So the 30s were kind of a weird period where a ton of patents were were formed, but not a ton of changes happened. So if you look at it in a timeline, it almost feels like you skip from the mid-20s and the roaring 20s with, with all these uh, electric pumps and um, motors and things to all of a sudden you're almost in the post-World War II years before it becomes a, a something that, that families can have in their home. And by the 60s and 70s, at one point, almost a third of households had some uh, aquatic life form as a pet. That a third. 
Yeah. I never thought yeah. we reached that uh, at any time in our history, but that's uh, that's pretty aggressive. Sea monkeys. Sea monkeys. Uh, yeah, maybe they counted sea monkeys. <laughs> maybe that's what it was. Well, so as far as uh, that, then when did air pumps come along? See, I, I, I first found an article, and I've been trying to uh, date it, that the first air pump was circa 1908. Right. So let me show you a little picture so you guys can see it. This is from the 18, what, let's, hold on, let me see. Uh, 1853, that's a hand yeah. pump. So they knew that fish needed oxygenation early on. It was just a matter of getting the components to be small enough. And it's really 1924, like I said, that Sears Magazine, which you, every house would have at the time, even out in yeah. the middle of nowhere, you could send away for a little pump that was about, you know, uh, six inches by five inches by five inches or so. And it was a little electric pump with a little belt on it. And, uh, and it had a little billows attached to it too. And so that same pump, uh, could also drive other mechanisms in your aquarium. So there were other attachments that you could, uh, make it like a power head for your water to turn like a wave maker. And you could also, um, have it pumping in and out water and you could also have it creating heat with another attachment so they did kind of have interesting patents uh and it was by the late 20s that you really start seeing a lot of people copying other patents and what you could do is there were special people that were in big cities so the the part we're kind of missing between the 60s and the 20s is that all these aquarium clubs around the country They'd have fanatics that, you know, they'd have their whole house full of fish tanks. And these people would live in a, in a big port city, you know, San Francisco, uh, Seattle was another city that had quite a few. Um, but, you know, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, Chicago, not a port, kind of a port city. It's on the Great Lakes. Um, but they would go to a rubber factory to get, you know, the rubber for the belt. They would go. And so these people would put together kits. And so if you subscribe to a newsletter or a magazine for the hobby, that's kind of where you found stuff. But as that was going on, you could see big magazines like um, Sears. And then later on, there was um, the American Goldfish Supply magazine and catalog that uh, a lot of people had. Um, at one point, it had 3 million subscribers in the U.S. Uh, quarterly. And that was in the 30s, I believe. Um, and you could mail order parts for what we'd think of as today a community tank by that point in time. See, I thought it was the, when you said pumps uh, starting in the 20s best years, I thought it was uh, water pumps, not air pumps. So that uh, definitely clarifies. They have, they have patents for everything that you could think of. It's pretty amazing. Uh, if you look through them, uh, the other problem is that people got shocked. They got the hell shocked out of them. A lot back then especially with the metaframe tanks so it would create a static charge and actually houses burn down and stuff because of that static jumping from the water and the metal frame tank to people putting their hand in there and things like that people actually were killed but this way too so there was a kind of a pushback to come up with like you said um a safer kind of like we think of it today as the the air pump the air 
stone and a quiet thing because those pumps back then were not quiet. They were loud. And piston pumps still are loud today. Yes, yeah. Like, like your favorite one that I donated to you. Yeah, Rob's and I have a emergency <laughs> pump that goes back and forth between us. His name is Charles. Yeah, and the thing gets so hot, you can fry an egg on it. And it's, it's loud enough where you can hear it next door, but it will pump enough air to put up a hot air balloon in about 15 seconds. So we were looking for cheaper alternatives than some of the linear air pumps that you see traditionally used, like the Alita, the, was it, Gemco and all that. Yeah, Gemco. So we, we found, like, well, these piston pumps are like 35 bucks, man. Get it from uh, wherever. And we got a massive bastard. And this thing, it sounds like you you had to pull start it. Like it's it's not like miles. you have a Harley Davidson running in your basement. I actually, because Jimmy hates it so much, we had it in our fish room at one time uh, that we had a special uh, room in town. And I put Google eyes on it for the next time he comes in the shop, he can see it. The Google eyes melted, melted. onto the pump. So uh, runs a little hot, but it works great. Definitely hot. So now it's our emergency all reliable when our linear pumps need a repair every, you know, decade or so. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, you if you think about other technologies, it can help inform you about the aquarium because there's actually like conversion kits for vacuum cleaners of how to get air to move through water. I mean, people had all sorts of quirky manuals that they put out in fish magazines and people probably don't know this unless they're of a certain age and i'm right on the edge of that age but the old fish magazines like you know uh fish enthusiasts fish hobbyists things like that um they would have ads in the back just like the comic books used to and you could get things like phone numbers or phone trees of people breeding a certain species that you wanted and that's how you would source really uh niche species but also you could send away for instructions or kind of oddball or designer level um, inventions or maybe you'd call them like artisanal versions of equipment for the hobby. So going uh, back then, talking about uh, just the filters, um, when did the undergravel filter craze start? Because I have undergravel filter documentation going pretty darn far. And when you go to like a lot of these really uh old almost historic uh pet stores they still use some of the original equipment that hasn't broken yeah um you know i would have to honestly i don't want to like be wrong and and say it off the top of my head um but it's, i haven't found the information that uh, clearly because i think so many people had some uh version of it and it wasn't necessarily a patent branded thing it was just something right. that everybody right. traditionally used Right. And so, I mean, if you go into, um, oh man, I'm trying to remember the exact name of it, but I think it's Ocean Aquaria in San Francisco, but they have an all Wallstead based store that's been there for like 40 years and they don't even use any filtration other than biological in the tanks and, and oxygenation from the plants, um, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but they can only have a very limited amount of stock is the kind of the killer to that. Um, people started figuring out quickly that you need to get rid of the ammonia. And they tried that also with chemicals pretty heavily. Instead of mechanical filters, they would add additives to the tank that would neutralize it. So it'd be like changing the water every few days and throwing, you know, a shot glass of Seachem uh, Prime into your tank every two days. Um, was another way that people kind of went about it. 
because it was really a mystery until, like I said, the 20s uh, is really when that science all came in like, oh, this is how fish's gills work. And this is how, you know, they need this. And it's the ammonia that's killing them. They knew something was building up in the water, you know. Um, and you can always go back, it seems like, in this hobby and find some genius who knew 50 years before everyone else. But before the mainstream catches on, always takes some time. It's what it seems like. But like you said, it, 30s, yeah. 20s, 30s. Yeah. Again, with that as well. The internet was really slow back then, too, in the 30s uh, and 40s. I heard yeah. it like worse than dial up. You guys were in like smoke signals. Smoke signals. And then we'd read it on the side of caves. Smoke signals. And uh, I don't think they even invented the middle finger back then, did they? <laughs> no, but they did today. <laughs> How about that? I looked that up the other day. I think it was like the 70s. There's like, old videos of mr rogers like flipping kids off because he was showing how fingers work on television and he just shows just the two middle fingers and back then it didn't mean anything well do you know where that came from just really quick a really quick not aside a, not a clue so, i just heard it was like i thought it was the 70s no it actually was from the hundred years war in england and france and the word the f word comes from the word pluck and it's to pluck a bow bowmen used to english bowmen and french bowmen would be captured and they'd cut off these two fingers because that's how they pulled their bow back and during that war way back hundreds of years ago i think that was the 1500s 1600s yeah uh, it's 15s 1500s yeah uh they'd cut them cut their fingers off and if they still had their fingers they'd put them up in the air and show that they were still useful bowmen to the other side and it became pluck you. Uh, now that's the the oldest uh, mention of it that they can find. Uh, the hand gesture, uh, but I don't know when it came back into vogue. But I just find that interesting. Uh, whether that's true or not, that story exists from uh, firsthand sources of that era. So, so apparently, I'm uh, I'm wrong. That it was it was just more popularized in the seventies. It looks like nineteen twenty eight, right with the aquarium conspiracy theory. Jimmy, the middle finger in aquarium became popular at the same time. Wow! Just saying, they knew it when the fish dies. Middle finger, middle finger. That's my favorite fish. Just died middle right finger. there. It was uh, thanks to the film Speedy in nineteen twenty eight that was uh, helped to begin the pop repopularization of the middle finger. So uh, wow. There you go. That, you know, you learn something every day on this podcast. It might not do you any good in life, but at least you can bring it up and win a free beer somewhere. <laughs> you know, that's probably why I know half of what I know for my channel was uh, in college. Like we had a team and I was the history and like useless trivia guy. We had a sports guy and everything else, but we, we went to get free beer and free food, like gift, like dollars to the restaurant or bar. And we'd hit a different spot each night in our college town. So that might be, that may be paying dividends, kind of. <laughs> and now to bring it full circle, here's my question about alcohol. Bring Because in a previous podcast, we had a little mystery. Does alcohol work to remove ammonia and nitrates from a tank? And specifically, vodka has been popularized in this conversation. I don't know. So apparently. That bad. <laughs> I don't know. That if you've not heard that podcast, it's uh, it's disturbing as hell. Actually, we talked about diddling dolphins, and yeah, there's a whole lot of dolphins do that to themselves. Why you guys got to do that? Well, you need to listen to the conspiracy theory <laughs> podcast. That's all there is uh, is to it. But apparently, 
the idea is that putting i'm trying to go through the notes here because it was in discord we uh what's that we, we had the vivid discussion should be right here so i'm not an expert but if you put two mils a day can cut nitrates and phosphates about one fourth so i've only been doing 20 percent water changes once a month instead of a once a week and don't have any scientific stats but the old reefer told me to start doing it when i had a problem and it works for me so we have officially confirmed that people are dosing their aquariums with vodka i am not condoning the uh, that's doing such a this. low amount though i mean i feel yeah, I like i feel like that's like one for me one for my 40 gal and it's gonna be fine it's basically <laughs> it's basically you're taking a 40 a malt liquor and then pouring out one for your homies i mean yeah. my my daughter-in-law when she cleans house she uses vodka as spray throughout her house as a cleaner. i don't, I don't want to say this as a stranger but i think she has a problem there jimmy <laughs> i'm gonna tell ali when i see her how about this one Did you read that for the what's crowd? that it's carbon dosing how it was explained to me that it feels feed what? feeds, feeds anaerobic bacteria anaerobic bacteria which converts nitrates completing the cycle and any bacteria bloom gets cleared out by the skimmer interesting yeah uh, it's a it's a deal so you know keep sending in more of that uh, vodka related filtration suggestions because i i need to know more and, if and until we figured it out don't don't pour one out for your homies in your tank <laughs> i want good i want somebody out there to get us a grant Somebody out there has got their finger on the grant button. Get us a damn grant. Get me about 12 or 15 cases of free vodka. I'll, I'll supply the aquariums and the fish, and we'll make millions. All right. For those vodka companies out there, Crystalhead <laughs> Vodka, Smirnoff, That's whoever right. you are, if you're a vodka company and you want to sponsor us to do this investigation for you, we will do the investigation. Oh, man. If, if I knew that when I met Dan Aykroyd a couple of years ago, uh, Dan Aykroyd has Skullhead Vodka. Oh, we went right. to an after party. We saw the Blues Brothers uh, perform on uh, New Year's Eve, and afterwards they had a a skull party, which we uh, went and partook in. And I wish I'd have known about it then because I would have brought it up. But well, I think you should start your research probably with uh, no tank water and a hundred percent vodka just to be safe. Yeah, start there, work back, and see where the good dosing. That's happen. right. Yeah. And if you're really pouring one out for your homies into your fish tank, that homie's probably Jimmy Hoffa because he's sleeping with the fishes. <laughs> oh, 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 great. Now we now we got the mob after us. Also, great Teamsters are coming. Teamsters. Teamsters. Be careful. See? Be careful. I'm we're, a teamster. we're okay with this. Well, just, uh, just to make sure, okay, we got uh, at least some filtrations, pump creation, tanks, how they got popularized. Um, I think the only things that we're missing is from like the 1950s, 60s up till now. And we have major innovations, but they're easier to track. You know, LED lights has been in the last 20 years. Um, I really say the last 10 years has been affordable. Um, before you hear about a couple extremists, zoos trying a couple of reef tanks, even some of the reef tanks now, people are still leery of going over to LEDs because they don't believe it has the full spectrum. Um, I mean, we're, we're that uh, recent. We have species such as the shrimp hobby. That's only happened since 1995, 94 um, era. And that's been really hard to get uh, information out on. It's exploding hobby, but it's very coveted on like best kept secrets. No one wants to tell how breeding works. Even generalized care is a massive misconception. So 
what are some a lot of the of research on that actually yeah what are some of the things uh from like the 60s to now that really uh have set because again we had their staple bread and butter fish that we've mentioned um really come into fruition in the 50s and 60s what uh <clears throat> others have we seen come so uh you know one major thing that has uh come most recently so one thing that we've really seen is a lot of plecos and corridoras uh we've all the l numbers that's really been since the 70s that that's been popularized um of course there were they were known but they weren't known to the tune of 900 species or uh or 1200 or whatever it's at now um so there's that, there's um, Corydoras and the CW counts. Now there's websites that do that. But I was speaking specifically to also just the shrimp. Like it was actually, the, the, what makes it so different, the shrimp uh, part of the hobby now, is that it was a concerted effort by breeders that were backed by investors. So like the cherry shrimp that we know today was actually launched in 2003, November of 2003, just in time for Christmas at Petco as a whole in the US, like a polished version of the Neocaridina Davidi or Zangadensis, whichever one you want to call it. And then later Palmata, Neo Neocaridina Palmata and you know Crystal Shrimp and other things uh entered the US via Taiwan, Singapore, and Japan hobbies and Germany. Um but they were actually introduced as a concerted effort and uh, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, pr predominantly Chinese and Japanese uh, investors, I mean, they literally will have a thousand tanks of shrimp in, in these areas where it's warm enough that they don't need to pay for the heat and they just get a big linear pump for the tanks and they eat, you know, leaves basically with uh, Bacter AE on them. And they look for morphs and they're always trying to get the next new thing. And uh, they're actually like patented, uh, essentially, in the countries where they can do that. China doesn't really work that way. It's kind of whoever invents the thing first gets it as long as it's novel under their name. But in America, you can actually patent certain things or brands or ideas. And so they were all in a big hurry to market to America because just like with technology, they just kind of, they don't see it as stealing from one another in China. Um, they see it as kind of uh, the whole society works together to rise, working off the backs of one another. But I mean, you have to bet that some inventors and companies are like, we spent half a million dollars on that. And they're pretty pissed off. But um, the shrimp hobby is actually one of those things that's, that has been a very kind of sea monkey-esque endeavor in a weird way. They've really had to market it to get it to take hold in America. Uh, Germany had it in the 90s, but America, we had only a few kinds of, you know, fairy shrimp, ghost shrimp, saltwater shrimp we had. Um, but later, um, the, the Neocaridinas and the Caridinas and the Bobaltis are all kind of introductions uh, by, by distributors on purpose, pretty intentionally. Again, people had them before that date but it was just you know the extremist breeders sure. and they sure. they mainly came out of uh selective breeding from uh, i can never pronounce it his Hizasu suzuki is the guy that essentially uh started the morphs of crystal shrimp and that's where people mark the beginning of this and that's why 
you know, uh, late 90s is when the stuff started trickling out. And then again, the big marketing campaign hit. And, you know, that's not that uh, far ago. But uh, again, it's starting to explode. But information's uh, still capped. But as far as other species, I, I like to point out the stuff that's disappeared since then. Sure, so, you sure. know, from 1960 to now, we have CITES species. We have stuff that you can't import, stuff that's completely left from the trade. Even, uh, do you know of any species that used to be in the trade, they're now completely extinct? Uh, yeah, there's actually, I mean, uh, you could argue that endlers are completely extinct and guppies are completely extinct in the wild. You could also say, I mean, uh, goody ads and things like that. I mean, there's like 40, 50 species. Maybe I'm wrong. There might even be like 100 species. But uh, in the in the African lakes too as well, there's cichlid species that are either evolving so quickly that they've changed since the 40s and 50s when they were, you know, popularized, or, or got wiped by Nile perch. Yeah, or they've been wiped out exactly when in the 60s, and also either from damming things or from you know hydroelectric projects or from introduction of uh, agricultural aquacultural fish. Uh, it's really ruined a lot of native fish. Uh, a real famous one for like aquascapers would be the um, Trigonostigma um, or, or the Somfongzii. So Somfong rasbora, um, that was completely extinct. Uh, they found it in creeks and streams around Bangkok in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and then it kind of went MIA. Well, uh, I think it was... Um, Aquarium Glazer had an import of Rasbora SB, and one of the guys working happened to spot and know his fish really well, happened to spot a trio of one female and two males of Somfongzi Rasboras. And from those fish, he bred them back. And I have some now, so I mean, they're common enough that they're getting back in. So it's cool that CITES and, um, and uh, CARES, if you want to, I mean, there's different names. But there, there's different groups and different organizations that are popularized in fish clubs in America and Europe that uh, are really trying to bring back some of these things. But Mexico City and Central America is another bioregion that was really hardly hard hit by uh, agricultural impact. Lake Titicaca, as I'm sure you know of, it, it's one that they've done farming on and kind of... Uh, ruined and then also uh lake inlay is another amazing story uh because we weren't able to get into myanmar or burma as it was known but in 2006 things like cpds uh uh dwarf rasboras emerald dwarf rasboras uh the orange uh rummy nose rasbora all sorts of fish um have entered the hobby because we just didn't know that area and today papua new guinea and uh the, the Congo and the Central, Central African Republic, as well as parts of the Amazon and the Orinoco Delta, still have regions that we're finding new species in all the time. So, I'm also trying to think of the other things that might have changed in the you know last uh, half century of fish care. And I think the overall change of how fish are transported and treated have changed greatly. I mean, uh, we've talked about on the podcast on uh, some of our funner uh episodes that people write us about uh continually like uh, we had a sucks episode talking about uh, all the things wrong with the hobby things we weren't supposed to talk about because we're broadcasting and <laughs> we mentioned that you know betas were shipped on napkins 
Paper towels. Paper towels. So, you know, sure, we started out with this cool invention of, you know, melt can shipping things. But, uh, you know, they were shipping on paper towels up till what time do you remember, Jimmy? You know, when I first got into it, they were just getting out of it. So, you know, 30, 35 years ago, they were still shipping. Not, I believe. not near long enough. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember, I remember uh, when I first got my first shipment in and stuff and they go, yeah, we got these new little bags now that come in. People are a lot happier with that. I'm like what? Well, yeah. Now there's, you know, breather bags. I don't know what year those were invented, but that's a pretty cool uh, innovation in the hobby. Whatever year those came in. I remember that in the early 2000s. Yeah. So yeah, that and the little um, ammonia sensing squares that they put in and um, you know, they used to just sedate the hell out of fish and just stick them in the blue water and call it good, you know, and pack them in as asleep as many as you could. So what are breather bags for people that don't know? So they are a, a permeable membrane uh, that is a bag. It looks like a little plastic bag you'd put like produce in in America in the supermarket. And uh, basically it lets a uh, gas exchange happen between the water and the outside of the bag so that fish can get uh, O2 and uh, other gases can come and go. So the CO2 can leave the bag and the O2 can get back into the water in the in the bag. Uh, so one note on that is just when you toss them in your tank, if you get them, if you ever get a, ta- a mail order bag of, sh- of fish and there's no air in it and it's in a kind of a, a soft to the touch satin bag, uh, it's a breather bag probably. And so you don't want to float it like normal necessarily. You need to leave some of that membrane exposed to the air in the room. Otherwise, uh, it can't exchange gas when it's underwater, uh, and it, it will build up at the CO2 in there. Good to know. My personal favorite was the QR codes that they started shipping the fish with, the saltwater company that did that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then um, they'd go on the tags, and I would sell the crap out of those because people would just – I'd be like, scan it, and it would just tell them when they caught – from the time that they caught the fish – it would go through every little thing of like the fish went here, the fish went here, the fish went here at eight, eight, eight. Oh, I treated it this date. And then they just buy it. it. And the fish would be like two or three times even what they should have been, you know, a normal price. But people would pay it because they could track everything and be like, yep, that's fish. I think that's an awesome, an awesome advent into the hobby. Because, I mean, I've been down um, on my channel. I've talked to the people at Seagrass, the people at Imperial 5D. Um, kind of all the big places that are I call the cartel of the uh, of the uh, aquarium hobby that kind of control most of the big import and then shipping to big stores and chains and local fish stores too. But they, they're working with things like Project Piaba and uh, other things like government organizations in uh, Brazil. There's another one called Ibama with an I, not Obama, but Ibama, and uh, it sets quotas on fisheries and things like that. Saltwater fishing was seeing a, a really hard time uh, with reefs being destroyed with dynamite and electrocution and all sorts of really unsustainable harvesting uh, practices. But really, they're finding in the Amazon and, and in uh, you know, the Orinoco Delta and in the uh, uh, Bangladesh and uh, Thai and uh, Malaysian rivers that they have such a dry and wet season that the fish get stuck in areas that would dry out anyways. So these fish breed in numbers that are massive. So when they collect them right after they've bred, it's a very sustainable way for local people to collect. So freshwater at least has that advantage. 
But for other species like plecos and things that can live a long time and take a while to reach maturity, relatively speaking, uh, that's why you're seeing things like uh, Brazil banning exports and things like that uh, and putting quotas on things. Yeah, we had the uh, president of uh, Project uh, Piaba on, and that was a fascinating uh, tale for sure. And it's changed from, you know, in the 70s to 80s, people are like, oh, we, should, we shouldn't get destroy habitats to catch wild fish and really wasn't the case. And they've, uh, they've ensured that. And now we even have um, Brazil opening up to a whitelist instead of a, uh, a black or everything's blacklisted and it has to be on a, a separate list. So now we can get any fish unless it's on their list. It's going to open up a lot more species after this uh, whole COVID uh, thing goes, uh, goes over. But Man, we we've certainly uh, covered a lot of different topics. Do we miss anything in particular that uh, you feel is uh, necessary? I think that um, the next step is kind of an important one, and that's um, you know gimmicks will come and go in our hobby. Things like uh, you know uh, t- uh, Takashi Six Nine. No, I'm just kidding. Takashi Amano. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, you know, his, his influence on the hobby is pretty important. And Diane Wallstead, uh, who wrote a book, The Wallstead Method of Keeping Fish, basically, or Dirted Aquariums, both those things have really come back. And uh, they found a way, yet again, to sell us, you know, $30 gravel for a, ki- a kilo for $30 and uh, dirt for $50 for, you know, 10 pounds or whatever. But I think as these things come and go, it's just important to inform yourself on What's a, a new innovation versus looking back at what can you just DIY? I mean, this has always been a DIY hobby. And a lot of the things we think we need to spend money on aren't. And you can really save yourself. You know, the kits that you buy are notorious. Uh, go to the dollar per gallon sale. You can buy yourself, spend the money on a cool fish and and buy it from a responsibly sourced place uh, and, and inform yourself on the history of what it takes to keep these fish successfully with the internet, the information is so easy to access on, you know, seriously fish or, uh, whatever, you know, reef, uh, to rainforest, uh, you know, uh, Amazonia magazine or wherever you want to read it. But, um, there's, there's not really an excuse anymore to, to not learn what you want about the things you want to keep. And then uh, I think the other thing that we should keep alive and that COVID has really kept, um, it's really shined a light on, is I had people paying me $10 for uh, neon green tetras that I was breeding as nanofish in the community because they're beautiful. And I mean, if they were a new species that no one had ever seen, people would pay crazy money for them. And sometimes we forget because things become common, uh, the effort it takes to spawn a little nanofish or um the time it goes into things and conditioning water and things like that but i think um pet stores have been buying from breeders in the country a lot because uh it's it's been hard to supply the hobby uh since covid happened and uh i think it's an interesting learning time uh to really reestablish some of our breeding networks of hobbyists and you know reaching out to one another in the hobby on a human level of Hey, uh, you know, hey, Bob, what are you breeding today at your local club or hopping on, you know, here on the Discord or on uh, Facebook or wherever? 
but uh, make those links and you'll learn a lot about saving money, about um, DIY. Uh, there's always someone getting out of the hobby for a while that's got a bunch of tanks they're trying to get rid of um, and someone who wants a bunch of tanks. So I think it's just important the human element uh, in this hobby all along uh, is really a, a key thing that has been there all along is, um, you know, to, to keep ourselves informed, to keep the hobby responsible, and also to keep it, it friendly and a community as uh, we're able to reach across the globe to, to really expand the community to a global one uh, rather than just, you know, your town. You know, it's interesting you said about about the green the green neon that you were breeding and stuff. Um, Adam and I have had this conversation a thousand times where people will go out and produce, let's say, uh, neons or hamsters or gerbils, and all of a sudden they quit because so many people are into it. And, and so all of a sudden you've got 10 people in the area breeding hamsters, selling to the pet store, and then they all get out of it at the same time, and there's a demand. I have not been able to get regular neon tetras for the last 90 days. And I talked That's to our friends at Seagrass Farms and they said when COVID happened, a lot of the a lot of the uh local farms down there just kind of not shut down, but they just maintained and didn't breed because they were so concerned they're not gonna be able to sell anything. So right now I usually uh order just from Seagrass Farms uh two, three hundred, four hundred um neons uh every couple of weeks for my store. And uh, they have not had them. And they told me they will not probably have them for another 30 to 45 days. And we're going into some, and normally that's when we get our best fish in September, October, because all the uh, fish are They're brought from the ponds. ponds. Yeah. And right now I can't get flipping neons. And I would pay, you know, I would pay money right now because I guess people screaming, you know, you sell so many neons, but now, now that you can't get them, everybody wants them. And it's just and very frustrating when people get out of it. I'm looking over at my tank of neons. Yeah. I may I may be a, a, a bit of a, a conspiracy theorist. I mean, not like flat earther type, but, you know, uh, that when COVID started on my channel, I told everyone in January, go get your fish supplies, start breeding all the stuff that they import all the time that's dirt cheap because you're going to be able to sell it to your local stores. And I had so many people tell me off on my channel, but I want to toot my own horn right now. Because I started breeding all the common fish. You know, everyone breeds angelfish, blue rams, uh, German rams, whatever, um, and guppies and things like that. But it was the, the common fish that we don't farm in the U.S. I looked at the list of top sellers, and I've been breeding them since February. And literally, that's paying my bills all summer long. So, I mean, I think it's come back in the hobby. And a lot of other, I'm not the only one. A lot of us talked about this when it was starting. Um, worst case scenario, everyone's worried about toilet paper and food. And I'm like, what's going to happen to my neon Tetris? Yeah. And you're so. dead on. And, and just look at it. We are nowhere near done with this. Nowhere near done. It's never too late to get into it. Um, I mean, Seeger's telling me 30 to 45 days. Well, they've been telling me that for the last two months. Um, uh, I talked to, um, uh, my salesperson today. I said, Hey, about Schmelta airlines. Are they, are they going to bring them into my hometown? Nope. They're not even hauling. They're not even hauling cats and dogs yet, and so the the problem is is that now we have to rely on from like Seagrass Farms. We have to rely on UPS. We're paying three times the freight, uh, you know, and 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 the fish are very limited. And Seagrass Farms is also having the same problem with the stuff that's not not grown here in the U.S. with the imports. 
they're getting very few imports in and when they are getting stuff in it's it's three times the price for for freight because there's so many few there's no competition out there right now there's not a whole lot of airlines flying so consider no. your horn formally tooted i even did the same thing i went uh as soon as i heard the states were closing i went to uh uh, a local pet store i i got a bunch of stuff i paid retail for and a bunch of people needed it and i i didn't i just got for me but of course i could uh slim down on my numbers a bit and uh yeah definitely made a profit on that yeah, that's well, just not think, that's just me emptying a store at retail a price i think the other thing people just uh, while we're on the topic and then i'll shut up but uh hurricanes keep an eye on those there aren't that many farms in florida like there used to be there used to be 700 family-owned farms in the 60s now there's 186 registered and that could just be a guy with a big fish room or that could be a 50 acre farm but that's how many agricultural licenses there were last year in florida and when they get a big hurricane if it hits that tampa area that lakeland tampa area they're in trouble and it really does impact the hobby you know the ponds can overflow, can spill out, can get contaminated, or have predatory fish get into them. Uh, so, I mean, if that were to hit on top of, since it's been a busy hurricane season, if that were to hit on top of all this other stuff, I mean, you might really uh, double your money if you start breeding some of those things now, just throwing it out there. There's four stores I know everything in Florida now. Right. Yeah. And right now, um, Seagrass Farms is located maybe two and a half to four miles away from, from the coast. And they, they're always worried about uh tidal surge and they are, um, you know, they, when, when those storms hit, a lot of their stuff is just uh, metal frame buildings, not with plat, but you know, the hard plastic on it. And they'll actually send everybody home, but they'll leave two or three people there just to try to keep things running. And of course they have all their own generators and stuff, but, but, but they've told me many times that all we need is a, a tidal surge, up the you know come up the road two three miles inland and they're going to be screwed and and that will you know affect everybody because secrets farms being one of the largest you know producers and tra and shippers uh, it's just going to be a trickle down effect and so um you know god we don't want anything to happen to them but if it does um you know the guy that has a tank full of neons like yourself is going to be uh in a much better position well, well i think that was a great tangent to, to to hop on but uh I'm gonna cut things short. We're we're, we're yeah. sitting at two hours already. Two hours. Two hours. Um, <laughs> I know. Poof! It just disappears. But uh, I think that going from the early age of having, you know, an aluminum tank with a slate bottom, heating with a Bunsen burner, having maybe a, an air compressor that you have to oil every month, to no, uh, just having a planted tank with nothing in it at all. Um, the seals on these original tanks I, we even forgot to mention where you know a compound mixture of flaxseed oil um lead oxide and tar i mean we've come a long way in the uh the aquarium hobby in just this uh, half a century but um if you're looking to keep yourself a vintage do like me find yourself an old meta frame find a way to reseal it and uh fully planted tank no uh no heat no pump just plants a smile and get yourself some uh, white cloud mountain minnows. And where did you find your Metaframe tank? Steal it from your buddy that you podcast with. That's <laughs> that's where he found it. That's his, where you should get in my basement. Gentlemen. Well, I wanted to thank you well, guys thank for you. having me on. So uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for coming.
Yeah, thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, not everybody's as brave as you, my little soldier. And if you guys want to go and go deeper into this, we just covered modern Aquaria, which is, again, that 1917-ish mark to the current. Um, Alex, you have a fantastic series that uh, you've done on your YouTube channel showing you know, how tanks got started, the original creator of the tank. I think it's like a three, two to three-part series. Certainly check it out on, uh, on your YouTube channel. Um, and what is that? What is his YouTube channel? The link will be in the notes of the podcast, but is the secret history of living, uh, secret history of living in your aquarium. Certainly check it out on YouTube. Like and subscribe. He's smiling. He even gave me like the fingers, which I think come from his college era. College era. Hang loose, bro. Hang loose. I gave the devil horns. Well, thanks again, guys. Adam, you got any other notes? No, I'm good. All right. Catch you next week, guys. Thanks. Take care. You can put your pants back on. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. Go fuck yourself, don't you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's my boy, don't you know.